This is Chapter 91 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we kick off 2019 with a couple of new thrillers from bestsellers Robin Cook and Preston and Child. Plus, we feature a legal thriller from an author who started his writing career on a dare. It's flu season, and if you're feeling a little under the weather, you might want to hold off on reading the latest book from Robin Cook. Anxious New York City subway writers, you may also want to save the reading for home. The book is called Pandemic, and as you can guess from the title, it involves people dying from a mystery illness and a race against time to get to the bottom of what's going on. So I have to tell you, uh, reading your book on the New York City subway uh, on the ride down here this morning and my train stopped in the tunnel and it got super, super quiet. It really does add a whole level to uh, to what you've written. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I can't imagine. That's like taking uh, some people used to take my book coma into the hospital when they were going in for an operation. For readers who don't know, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Pandemic is, uh, obviously, there is a pandemic, meaning an outbreak of an illness, a contagious illness in several continents. And uh, because this is 19, uh, 2018, the 100th year anniversary of the 1918 influenza pandemic that killed hundreds of millions of people, I remember as a medical student hearing stories that people there were episodes of people getting on the subway in Brooklyn and, and, and asymptomatic and then dying of influenza um, in the hour plus that it took for the subway to get to Manhattan. So I thought it was uh, to repeat that um, and uh, talk about that and have a, another illness that uh, did the same thing um, was a great way to, uh, to start Pandemic. Even though Pandemic is really ultimately a book about uh, this new gene editing technique called CRISPR-Cas9. Just a few weeks ago, you know, the the whole medical world kind of was shooken up a little bit by uh, a scientist, a Chinese scientist, as it turns out, who used this CRISPR technology to to do some gene editing on, on fetuses. So your book is really like right there, right in the middle of everything that's going on right now. Well, uh, yeah, I had nothing to do with that. Uh, I mean, it is the timely, it's so timely, but in pandemic, the bad guy is a Chinese. And uh, you say, oh, what a coincidence. It is not a coincidence. I knew that was going to happen. I've been to several meetings uh, with uh, CRISPR-Cas9 international meetings, etc. And I knew a little bit about um, Chinese philosophy which is somewhat different from our Western philosophy, where we concentrate on the individual and they're more interested in the collective aspect. And uh, I knew that um, that this uh, CRISPR-Cas9 was going to be misused uh, by uh, probably a Chinese uh, individual. So I was not surprised in the slightest. You know, a lot of times with with thriller books, there are a lot of situations that they're they're sort of what if and how close are we to getting there? But I mean, really, the answer is we're kind of there now, aren't we? Absolutely. And let me tell you something else is that the main issue uh, in pandemic is the fact that um, there is a this farm that I've, I call uh, the, 
uh, and it's raising pigs. And these pigs are actually growing human organs, not pig organs. They're growing human organs. And they have been altered uh, in some respects uh, to make it better for uh, to use their organs for transplantation for human. I know of two farms exactly like what I described that are, exist today in the United States that have they're doing this to pigs. This is not science fiction. This is happening today. This CRISPR-Cas9 is so powerful um, and so accurate and that it's, it, I mean, people are doing stuff all over the world uh, in, a, in a massive scale, and yet very few people seem to understand or know that, that this is occurring. It's going to change medicine. It's going to change agriculture. It's going to change animal husbandry. It's CRISPR-Cas9 and, and what you can do with living cells changing their genomes is going to go down, I believe, as one of the biggest, if not the biggest, development uh, discovery in um, biomedical science. And there's really this this fine line between this sort of technology being used for good and for someone playing God and using it for evil. That's the problem. I wrote a little preface uh, to uh, Pandemic, and uh, it talks about the, the power of this new technique, but the although it has a lot of uh, potential for good that there is peril because it's almost it almost works too well and it's almost too easy to use and uh, i uh, associated it with the peril of uh, nuclear physics when that was suddenly uh, coming to the fore and yet with nuclear physics not everyone could play around with it because you needed uh, enormous equipment and and you needed Radioactive material, etc. Whereas with CRISPR-Cas9, you can get it on the internet, and you can do it in your garage. And high school students can do it. High school biology students would be able to do it. It's really mind-boggling and terrifying. I'm afraid it is, and and yet at the same time, it, it, the promise is unbelievable as well. So it, it's a, it's a mixed bag, and I just hope that um, it can be dealt with in a way to take advantage of of what it's going to provide, the good, and to make uh, make it less likely um, that there's going to be uh, bad stuff like what was done by this uh, kind of, uh, this Chinese fellow um, who changed the genome of these, these uh, two, these twin girls um, for relatively frivolous reasons and, and has no idea what else was changed when he did that. So uh, someone is going to have to look at their genome and find out what other, because a, a even though it's very accurate, it recognizes a 20 nucleotide sequence. That's how the gene is found. Yet in 3.2 billion nucleotides, that's how long our chains are, our DNA chains, how many similar 20-letter sequences were close enough so that it could cause mutations in other other arenas and other areas of the genome. And the other problem, of course, is that with these twins is that they now, uh, every single cell is going to have it, including um, their reproductive cells. So they're going to pass on whatever problems um, that this individual caused is going to be passed on to their progeny if, if they uh, reproduce. 
You know, I think we've touched on this a little bit just in talking about this book and the research and the the real science behind it. But you're you're sort of credited with creating the medical thriller genre. What is it about these types of books that people just can't get enough of? Well, I think it's because we're we're all patients, um, ultimately, uh, and uh, so we all know we're going to have to end up in a hospital at some point. And that was one of my goals initially was to say, you know, hospitals are the most dangerous place in the, in in your city. And uh, so you're supposed to stay out of them, not, you know, want to go in them. And uh, I think it's the fact that, that it's, it's associated with real life. It's, you know, you can read uh, science fiction, that science fiction isn't going to bother you. Or, or you could read about uh, terrible sharks and decide, huh, I'm not going in the water. Um, but you can't stay out of the hospital. And, um, and people need information to protect themselves. That's how I see it. And we have the screwiest healthcare system in the industrialized world. And there, people should have some sort of conception of, of, of what's really going on. And um, that's what influenced me to, to use entertainment fiction. Uh, and I'm going to get involved a bit more now in terms of doing uh, movies and TV series myself. I'm going to start doing a, having a producing role, and because uh, I think this is very, very important information, and uh, so I think that's the reason that people find them interesting is because um, it, it, they can relate to it. They've either themselves have just been in a hospital, or uh, they have a family member who has been, or and they realize that things are not the way they ought to be in in lots of different ways. And uh, one way they can find out about it is by by reading uh, my medical thrillers. So what are you uh, cooking up next? Well, uh, I've become even more uh, this idea of DNA and and how it's how it's changing our culture, not only in terms of the science, but uh, just in everyday culture. So, and people don't understand how it works. Um, and so the, my next uh, thriller is going to be much more specifically involved with the, the DNA science. All right. Well, I look forward to reading that. Robin Cook, uh, the new book. <laughs> Robin Cook, the new book is Pandemic. Thank you for taking some time to talk to us today. Uh, my pleasure. Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child have written more than 20 books together. Needless to say, they've got their teamwork down to a science. I, on the other hand, encountered a few issues when I tried to connect to them via phone to talk about Verses for the Dead, their newest book to feature FBI Special Agent AXL Pendergast. The conversation starts out well enough with just me and Lincoln, but then takes a few turns as Doug tries to join the call. You'll just have to listen to find out what happens. We'll get started, and uh, I already let one of my colleagues out in the newsroom know that uh, if he happens to call, we'll patch him through, and we'll have a little fun with it. Okay, that sounds fine. So this is the latest book to feature FBI Special Agent Pendergast, and this time he's in sunny Miami, where a serial killer is cutting out the hearts of his victims. It's pretty gruesome stuff, but like always, you you guys do a a tremendous job with it. Why don't you give us a, a little bit more? Sure. The background is that um, Pendergast, you know, this is actually his, I think, 18th uh, um, in, uh, case that we've chronicled, and um, he, he's a lone wolf. 
He likes to do things his own way, which often conflict with the FBI's rule book. He gets results, but unfortunately, um, it often results in a pretty high body count. There often aren't a lot of perpetrators left to, uh, to try at the end of the day. And when a new FBI uh, supervisory field agent comes in to replace Pendergast's friend, who can be keeping him out of trouble, he's determined to, to bring Pendergast into uh, line. Um, and the way he does it is he gives him a case, not in New York, his stomping grounds, but off in Florida, um, and he, he saddles him with a partner, a Native American named Cold Moon, um, who he, he tasked with a, with a secret mission to keep his eye on Pendergast and, and uh, um, you know, a report back to the agent in charge in New York. And so Pendergast starts the book in a strange location, um, having to work with a partner, which is against everything that, uh, you know, th- that he, he, he believes in. And um, on top of that, he has a very difficult and strange case where somebody is killing young women and leaving their hearts on the graves of women who died eight years ago all by suicide with with odd notes and there seems to be no connection between the new death and the old suicide and nobody can figure out why this crazy is doing this and Pendergast is plopped down in the middle of this this whole situation. And I really don't want to give too much away, but I have to say it's really the first time I felt this sort of sympathy for someone who who felt compelled to kill. Did you guys start out thinking this is the type of serial killer we want to have, or did it just naturally progress that way? No, we we didn't start out thinking that way at all. Um, we didn't really know exactly what the makeup of the of the killer or killers would be. Um, uh, I mean. When you think about it, once you've read the book, the motive of the killer is very unusual, and we had to work hard to make it uh, totally believable. Um, and it also involved bringing in, you know, other people that you're right. They um, sometimes people who commit crimes can be victims too. Um, that doesn't excuse what they've done but it might go at least part of the way towards explaining how they got to where they are. And, you know, it also, from a literary standpoint, makes for a great great twist. It isn't just this creepy, sadistic, you know, um, like like the movie Seven or something like that, where he's just killing um, for the fun of it. You know, there's there's actually a, a very troubled mind um, operating in the behind the scenes. Another thing I want to talk about is camp coffee. There's a lot of it in the book. Where did that come from? Okay, that came from the fact that Doug and I, once we decided to give Pendergast a partner, which was the last thing Pendergast would want, we thought back about how Pendergast had worked with people before, and he'd always done it by intimidation, by social engineering, by using his intellect against them, and also his very quiet, you know, personality, which people couldn't stand. You know, they, if someone won't talk to you, you, you know, is, is often 
worse than, than an argument. So anyway, uh, in this book, we, we, we set out to, to have a really fun, we thought anyway, dynamic where Pendergast starts out thinking, oh, okay, if I have to have a, pe- a partner, I'll soon bend him to my will, you know. Um, and Cold Moon ends up being a partner that's very different than what he expects. You know, he's Native American. He's, he's used to, to, he's comfortable with silences. Um, and uh, he does a lot of things that annoy Pendergast. And one of them is he drinks what's known as camp coffee, which is just where you have a, a pot of boiling water on the stove. And instead of filtering the water, the coffee, you just keep pouring it, you know, fistfuls of grounds and then adding more water, and it's not good until it's been been boiling away for days. And, of course, this is completely antithetical to Pendergast's gourmand tastes, and they have several arguments about the stench and about how he's unable to get, you know, at one point they, they have a rocky relationship, and, and Pendergast tries to give him a peace offering of a, of a nice latte or something from Starbucks, you know, and, and Cold Moon takes one sip and he pours the rest out. Um, but by the end of the book, they've, if, if not, if not, you know, convinced each other of their taste in coffee, they've at least reached a, a detente. Um, and that seemed to us to be a good encapsulation of of the differences between them and of how they could make their relationship work. It sounds absolutely vile. Have either one of you tried it? Yes, I think we both tried it. Doug tried it because he um, he does a lot of uh, horseback riding over you know the Southwest, um, including one very long trip where he recreated Coronado's route. And I wasn't there, thank goodness, but I wouldn't be surprised if he had or made his share of camp coffee. And um, I went to uh, high school at a, prep, at a prep school for a while, located in the deserts of Arizona, where we all had to have our own horse and it was supposed to make, make you know, um, strong people out of us and et cetera, et cetera. And I as a, had to have drink camp coffee, and believe me, it's as, it's as bad as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to let that one lie and not try it. Yeah, yeah, I think i leave that off your bucket list if I were you. <laughs> so you guys have been working together a really long time, and I find it kind of ironic that you have a protagonist who really hates working with partners. How do you guys make your partnership work? Well, it's, it's, it's changed a lot over the years. You know, um, initially, of course, we never thought it was going to last. I mean... Either either the books wouldn't sell, or they'd stop selling, or one of us would get more, you know, better known for solo work, and something was going to happen. And Doug is very ambitious, and I always thought I'd eventually get left in the dust, um, or I'd change careers, and uh, you know, we didn't know. But but over the course of like literally a dozen books, uh, including books that we wrote on our own you know, solo novels, in addition to the joint books, we realized that that writing joint books had a certain 
advantage to them. As long as, you know, once I trusted Doug and he trusted me and we felt we were kindred spirits and we were friends and we respected each other's, you know, um, depths of knowledge and, and ability to write and everything else. And, you know, our relationship had been tried by fire. We, I mean, I don't want to compare it to the Beatles in any way, but we <laughs> we traveled around by bus across the country, and we'd been in good book signings and bad book signings and been in uncomfortable situations, you know, um, uh, almost, almost killed by gangsters in a, a high-end uh, New York restaurant when his wife started throwing breadsticks at them. And, I mean, you know, all these all these things that have been happened over the years that, um, funny and not so funny. So we realized at one point that even though you have to split the money, um, writing a book together, a novel, once you figure out how to do it, um, which is his own issue, is actually a lot more fun because writing is a lonely job. And, you know, you may come to a fork in the road and not know which way to go, and you're afraid that you're going to find out 10 forks later you took the wrong one. And having another author there you can talk to and who usually can figure out your dilemma in like 30 seconds. You look like a dope or feel like a dope. Um, and is also working on the book on another part of the book at the same time. Um, it makes it a lot more fun. Uh, and it feels like it's, it's, it's really a joint effort, you know, it's the two of you and you can jump into the conversation and you don't have to explain anything, uh, like you would to an editor or an agent, um, it's um, it's very it's it's you know we have found it over the years as we've gotten older and and we're, we've gotten happy with our toward the point we've reached you know um, I mean you can always sell more books obviously but we're happy with very happy with our readership and um, and the the how many people like Pendergast and so. Um, it's become a, a, a relationship that works out very well for both of us as a result. And I don't know if I'm going to open an old wound with my next question, but how did you decide whose name would go first? Oh, that's not an old wound. Um, that happened for two reasons. Um, one, because at the time, Doug had actually published at least one book, a book that I edited. And... Um, so they felt that his name might have a bit more recognition to book buyers and wholesalers and things like that. And also, I mean, this is back in, in prehistory almost. This was like 1989 or 1990. Um, there was really very little precedent for two people writing a novel together. You know, these days there are dead authors who keep managing to keep writing new books. You know, um, not to mention any names, but, you know, it's like Joe Blow with somebody else. And so it's it's uh, it seems to be more accepted that two authors can write a novel together. But back then it was like, what is this? Um, I can see two people writing a nonfiction book, but how can you possibly write a novel? Um, this is going to be terrible. And and they almost gave us a pseudonym. Um Lincoln Preston, you know, or, 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 or Douglas Child or something like that, um, to, to keep that fact, 
you know, um, a little bit... Uh, Not as obvious. Uh, um, but, you know, that that has now become our, our you know, our trademark. Um, and it actually works better because it's not like Doug writes one chapter and I write the next. You know, it isn't like that at all. We, we plot out entire arcs or, or acts of the book and then we assign sequences to each other or or certain characters, or certain bits of action, so that we we write entire sequences, and then um, we we compare them. You know, we talk about them. The other author reads them, revises them. So in a way, you know, it's 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 more than the sum of its parts. Um, in in some ways, or at least that's how it feels to us as the writers. So I know we've been carrying on most of this conversation, just the two of us, but I just found out that Doug is on the other line. So let's pause just a second. I'm going to bring him on. Hey there, Doug. This is Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Sorry I'm late. That's quite all right. I've been uh, having a nice lengthy conversation with Lincoln, who I just accidentally hung up on, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure Lincoln had many choice things to say about me while, while, while I was not there. Well, they were all very nice. We actually were just talking about the writing partnership that the, the two of you have. I mean, if you want to chime in and give me your take on how things work. Well, you know, it's a very interesting partnership. Uh, it's a bit like a marriage. Um, it's kind of like a bad marriage sometimes uh, where where we, you know, snipe at each other and criticize and and uh, when I rewrite his his work he uh, will get mad at me and when I when he rewrites me I get all pissed off at him but <laughs> somehow it ends up that we write awfully good books together I think I mean he he uh, he calls me on my stuff and I call him on his stuff so we don't let each other get away with anything and as a result, I I think that the partnership really we come up with books that are better than we could be writing on our own. So, uh, and it's I love Lincoln. I mean, we we've been doing this for over thirty years, and it's it's really fun to have a writing partner. You know, it's writing's a lonely business, and having a partner that you can complain to and grouse, uh, you know, with is really really helps a lot. I think. Would you be surprised to hear that he basically told me the exact same thing? Uh, well, I'm. <laughs> well, I I hope I'm not totally repeating what he said. That would be kind of boring. But uh, no, not at all. The whole idea that you can have someone uh, to bounce ideas off of, and he was mentioning uh, forks in the road, and when you hit many forks, and then you find out too late, you've taken the wrong turn. Yeah, that's right. You know, when I write solo novels, we both write solo novels. I've had the experience of of taking a wrong turn and going months down that road, hitting a dead end and realize, realizing that I'm going to have to throw away 10 or 20,000 words that I'd written and have to you know, go back to the, the fork and take the other fork. Uh, whereas when I'm working with Lincoln, you know, I take a wrong fork and he's right there. Doug, this is, this is terrible. This, this chapter is no good. We're going in the wrong direction. You've got to fix this. Of course, I don't like to hear that, and I, we sometimes have words. But in the end, that's why I have a partner, because he tells me the truth. So now I have Lincoln on the other line, and I'm, this is not live. This is taped. So what I'm okay. going to do is take a, a brief break to make sure that I can get both of you on the line at the same time and don't do drop anyone unceremoniously. 
So if you would just hang right. on with me for a second. I will, thanks. Thank you. Hey there, Lincoln. Hello. I know I accidentally dumped you and when I went to go pick up Doug, and now I've dumped Doug when I went to go pick up you again because of a quirk in our phone system. <laughs> so this is turning into quite the adventure. <laughs> but if you can hang well, tight for yeah. for just a minute more, because I really just had one le- one last question. If I could ask the both of you together, it'd be fantastic. So yes, let me, of course. Let I'll, me just I'll see if we can on. do this. I appreciate it. Hang on. I'm just testing to see if I have you both on the line. Hi, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Awesome. <laughs> it oh, Good, here we are. Okay. <laughs> Doug, nice to have you here. Yes, I, I've been hearing from Lisa that you've been bad-mouthing me while I was gone. <laughs> oh, that's not the case. I've been I'm a good boy this time. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I kind of get a so. taste of what your writing partnership might be like. Well, we have fun together. We really... Uh, uh, it makes writing a book a pleasure working with Lincoln most of the time, except when he, you know, has his spells. <laughs> and I love that both of you don't take your critics very seriously. You have a whole page on your website where you feature some of the bad reviews that your books have gotten over the years. And I just think that's fantastic. Yeah. In, in fact, our webmaster tells us that uh, that's one of the most popular areas for people to visit. They love reading those terrible, terrible reviews. Um, and, uh, you know, we thought when we were first starting out as authors, we, you know, like all authors, we were hypersensitive to bad reviews and we become outraged at, you know, even a slightly critical review on Amazon or whatever in a, in a newspaper, but it really, uh, helps us. Uh, it's kind of cathartic to put them up online and let everyone read them, and then we can all condemn the the uh, Philistine the these Philistine reviewers uh, all together. <laughs> so. You know, it's it's true. We have gotten thick skins, but there are a few out there that still sting, and they're usually not the ones that say we're boring or stupid writers, but they're the ones who who get to get it wrong and they don't understand what we're trying to do. And they're upset at us as a result. And I sort of want to shake them by the collars and say, you're just not getting it. You know, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to entertain you. We're not trying to, trying to badmouth this or that. Or, um, But by and large, we we tend to read the five-star reviews and leave the one-star reviews alone. Well, I know it's been a bit of a trial on my end trying to get the both of you together, but now that I have you, I guess my final question is, how long are we going to have to wait for the next Pendergast novel? Well, we're working on that right now. In fact, Lincoln and I are in the uh, in the brainstorming phase, which is really fun. You know, we have a an idea, but we need to create a plot from that idea. So we're we're on the phone, we're bouncing crazy thoughts back and forth, and, and Lincoln is and laughing and, and, you know, getting more and more outrageous and then trying to pull ourselves back into reality. But but this is really a, a fun time. And uh, we hope in the next few weeks we'll have sort of the basic outlines of a plot. And then we'll move forward in outlining chapters. And then Link will uh, write some of those chapters and I'll write some of those chapters. And then we trade chapters and rewrite each other. And that's when the the difficulty and the anger and the <laughs> begins. How dare Lincoln yeah, change matter, my Shakespearean level prose? As a matter of fact, once we hang up from you and, and Doug finishes up at uh, the methadone clinic, we're going to go talk again. And, um, uh, 
Uh, well, Lincoln's parole officer is really anxious to see him, so, you know, we do, both of us have to run. <laughs> well, you guys, this has been a real treat on my part. Thank you for, for putting up with the, the slight technical difficulties we have. The new book is Verses for the Dead, Douglas Preston, Lincoln Child. Thank you so much for uh, spending all this time with me today. Well, thank you, Lisa. Yeah, Lisa, it was our pleasure. Thanks for having us on. What would you do if you had everything, and I mean everything, taken away from you? Now, I don't think many of us would resort to murder, but that compelling what-if question propels The Puppet Master, the new legal thriller from Ronald Barrick. I recently spoke to him about his story of a political system gone awry. In The Puppet Master, a vigilante serial killer is running around Washington, D.C., assassinating um, corrupt politicians who he blames for uh, destroying his life. Um, someone is arrested and tried uh, for the murders uh, in the courtroom presided over by protagonist um, U.S. District 